Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Uh, go ahead and ring that notification bell, and you will get notified when I post content each and every week. Special guest today. Uh, my guest is writer, producer, and performer Ashley Smiley. Ashley is the program director at Bayview Opera House in San Francisco, and she's a resident artist of Magic Theater, also in San Francisco. Her new play, Dirty White Teslas Make Me Sad, will debut at the Magic Theater in February of 2024. She is without a doubt one of the most important voices in the Bay Area arts community. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's beautiful to be here. I appreciate such a beautiful introduction. Well deserved. You're very welcome. And before we begin, let me start out by saying happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for spending a little time with The Edric Show on your birthday. I'm sure there are other things you could be doing, but I appreciate you taking the time and I hope you have a wonderful birthday. Thank you so much. Yeah. I and I plan on Eating good food and getting good rest. So. Always a good thing. Always yeah. a good thing. Uh, let's start out by talking about your new piece, D Dirty White Teslas Make Me Sad, which is an amazing title. Thank you. Uh, tell me about the play. Uh, how's it coming together? And, uh, you know, tell me how, how it came to be. Yeah. Um, Dirty White Teslas Make Me Sad actually came out of a legitimate conversation me and my mother were having as we were driving in San Francisco. Um, so my mom's born and raised in San Francisco, and so am I. And, you know, it's no, it's no surprise to anyone if I say that the city has been changing and changing drastically, and especially for those that are um, Black folks or folks of color. The San Francisco landscape for us has really changed as well. Um, and, you know, I was talking about, you know, for some reason, cars and San Francisco have always been a thing, you know, they kind of um, represent a cultural change for us a lot of times. So if you think back to like when the Prius came out, you know, and we're like, and San Francisco is going to be green and we're going to lead the way and California is all about this and blah, blah, and this is who we are. Um, and the same thing. I felt started happening with the Tesla and in particular the white Tesla, which is what most folks are able to get um, easier access to. And it was like this influx of Teslas in the city, which also was revealing this like influx of money, right? And this growing wage disparity, um, this fight between San Francisco natives and these, you know, new folks who were coming in what tech represented um and so me and my mom were, were driving and you know this filthy white tesla just comes in front of us and i'm like you know dirty white teslas really make me sad it because i think about um this is something that's kind of talked about in the play too of you know this is a car that you have to have a certain amount of money to get it's almost like it's customized, right? And it's something that you wait for. It's a car of privilege. It is a car of privilege. Um, and what does it mean to be able to drive this car of privilege and technology and and um, just, you know, economic status? And then you let it get dirty, right? And you're driving it around and it's filthy and it's almost like, you know, it feels almost insulting to myself as as someone who's who's from here who's seeing what these what these cars are bringing in really um and i think a lot about you know the way that people talk about getting new shoes right and you don't want anyone to step on your new shoes and people would always talk about you know black folks in particular not having our priorities right because we were worried about someone stepping on our shoes and we would get mad and we would want to fight uh, about someone stepping on our new shoes um, and it's like, that's, if you think about it from a perspective of someone who already comes from privilege and the ability to constantly get new shoes and things like that. But if you're coming from a place of disadvantage, um, it took a lot to get those shoes. It took a lot of saving. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of care. You're actually making sure that they're taken care of at night. You're making sure that they don't get scuffed because you're not sure when you could ever get another pair of shoes like that again. 
right? And they did do something to elevate your status among your social group. And so there's a lot to fight for at that moment. Um, and so to see people take a car that has that same, you know, um, atmosphere about it and to just, you know, drive it around all willy-nilly and it's all filthy and it looks like you drove it through the mud. It's like, do you even know what that means when you do that? Do you even know what it means to to be driving around in a car that represents so much that you, and you let it get dirty, which means you don't care. You you just don't care um, about what, what message that sends. And it feels very indicative of the way that people talk about the tech industry and, and you know, the, the tech bros and things like that of San Francisco who don't care, right? We are their weekend spot. When they go home, they go somewhere else. Um, and so they don't care about mucking up the culture of San Francisco. They don't care about mucking up the politics of San Francisco. They're not invested in San Francisco at all. And so all of the folks of color, we're fighting like you're stepping on all of our shoes. You know, we worked really hard for this. We worked really um, collectively to build a culture and you're stepping all over it. You're getting all over it. So that's... um. That's a part of where the title came from is just this conversation about privilege, um, economic change and cultural change, um, but also how quickly San Francisco pivoted to those of privilege um, and really left behind a lot of the, the black folks and folks of color that made San Francisco interesting, you know, um, and, and so it becomes that broader conversation. Um, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, um, when I saw your title, it reminded me of my own, uh, Tesla aha moment. Uh, I worked for healthcare for a lot of years and I remember vividly probably several years ago, I was walking to my car. Uh, the physicians had their own parking lot and it struck me. I looked over and I was like, wow. And I physically counted, I think there were 17 Teslas wow. <laughs> in the physician parking wow. lot, as opposed to their, you know, regular parking lot, if you will. And that's when it kind of struck me. And so I think you're onto something with this whole notion of Tesla as a separator, uh, as a dividing line, uh, economically, socially, you name it. And uh, it's, it is something to talk about and uh, something to, to bring to light. And so uh, I was excited when I read the uh, information about your new piece, because um, I think you're tapping into something, especially with all the things that's going on in San Francisco right now. Yeah, it's all it's a conversation about facade too, you know, like the the Tesla is sleek, you know, it's it some of the models have doors that do the butterfly wings, you know, the, the it's got a whole atmosphere and culture and brand about it. Um much like San Francisco does. Um but the problem is when you get inside of a Tesla, you've got a big iPad and empty space. There is nothing in the front of the car. There's nothing in the back of the car. Um, and for me, that's what San Francisco started to become, too. You know, uh, a lot of empty, um, I mean, we have a lot of empty storefronts, but it, it just felt like a facade, like smoke and mirrors. Like, um, we're getting very hollow inside, and that's what Tesla's also were representing to me, too. And it's not that it's not cool, but it's like, what does it mean when kind of the emblem of your city or the the method of your city is is to be hollow, right? And kind of gut out all of the culture and all of the all of the bells and whistles and buttons and knobs that make a vehicle run. Um, and also what was chosen, right? Um, in in this idea of moving towards this new direction, what is it that was chosen to stick around and move forward and what was chosen to be left behind. And what we're finding is that um, the people of color and the, and the cultures of color are the ones that were chosen to be less of import to um, the influx of, of money and facade and smoke and mirrors that people are bringing in. And so, yeah. I'm excited. I'm super excited. I mean, it's a really beautiful cast to, you know, it focuses on a young Afro-Latino woman set in the Bayview um, who's coming upon this crisis moment um, on so many levels. 
examples of her life and existence and and really speaking about the world around her and what she's seen as a San Francisco native happening around her and how it's affecting not just the city as an idea, but also um, her family in particular, her mother, herself, her uncle, um, and kind of humanizing what a lot of people have seen, you know, in, in articles or whatever, but it is really humanizing that experience of watching a city get pulled from under your feet um, and, and already being Black and queer and whatever other intersection that you are, you know, already feeling like you're having a hard time getting your feet planted and then to have the one thing that you feel like you know um, get ripped up too is... It's a lot. It's a lot. And so I'm excited to dive into that world. Yeah. And I couldn't think of doing it any other any other place than with Camposanto and, and at the magic. Like that is that is the safest space um for me to do that kind of work in. Um and it's also just a dream come true to be able to produce a show with Camposanto. Like I've been, I've been a part of Camposanto for a very long time, but before that I was a super fan um, and went to all of the shows. It was like, I got to work with these folks someday. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. So it's just, uh, I'm still kind of awestruck that it's happening, you know, in this way. And then it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and we'll give the particulars before we close the interview. Uh, just know that it debuts in February at the Magic Theater, and uh, we'll have all that information uh, when we close out awesome. the interview. Um, I want to ask you now about uh, you're such a talented playwright and performer. And, you know, not only do you produce uh, on the stage, you're also are technically sound behind the stage. You can do a lot of things in the theater. Um, where did the inspiration or motivation for getting involved in the theater arts and performing arts come from? And are there particular individuals, playwrights, authors who uh, inspired you to start this journey? Yeah. Um, so if you let my mom tell it, um, I've been performing for quite some time since I was very young, um, always in front of something or, or, or something. But I would have to say that the... Um, I would say the big kicker, I think, where I got bit by the bug of performing arts was when I was able to um, be cast as the major general in um, my elementary school's production of the Pirates of Penzance, um, which was already funny because I was like, look at me, I'm already breaking barriers. You know, it's typically a white male role. Um, and I was a young black girl. Uh, so I was like, ooh, I'm different. Um, but Sherry Rosenberg, who I will forever um, be grateful to and whom I love dearly, um, was the director for that. She had been doing, you know, theater stuff with the kids at Lafayette because her son Coleman went there as well. And um, and he was my, he was kind of like my co-star. He was the pirate on the other end, which is funny because now he works on ships. So, um, and I do theater. So, it, you know, it worked out. But that was really where I got a feel for, I mean, yeah, I was like, I want to be an actor <laughs> um, and be on stage. You know, it, when you're in fifth grade and you get a standing ovation, you really think you did something. You know, being older, I'm like, who's not going to stand up and clap for the, you know, fifth graders? Um, so whether or not we really earned the standing out is a different conversation but um but that was definitely where I was like this so fulfilling and such a beautiful experience and just also you know being able to build that kind of camaraderie with my other castmates and with the other students was really cool um and so when I got to middle school um, I'd always been very interested in writing and so I was doing a lot of that um I kind of produced some some you know, talent shows or whatever at my school, participated in the theater class. Um, but I started working with um, Javier Reyes and Colored Ink at Bravo Theater Center in San Francisco. Um, and at the same time that I was working with them, I was working with the folks at Youth Speaks also. So I was like doing slam stuff with Youth Speaks and performing over there, but then also writing poetry and doing work with Javier at Colored Ink. And I have to say, you know, my time with Colored Ink is really 
probably what got me to where I am now, what really instilled um, my understanding of the power of theater and performing arts. Because we're, you know, young black and brown kids from all over the city, um, but we are doing the research, the dramaturgy of finding out about different things that are occurring in our in our society. And then we're working together to build the script, right? So we're doing the writing and Javier is, you know, helping us edit and navigate, but ultimately he's asking us to tell the story. Um, and we're taking a part of directing, you know, we're learning about sound and lights and stage management, which is at Brava is where I did all of that. Um, and yeah, and also doing new work. You know, we weren't learning Shakespeare and we weren't learning, you know, some of the things that are considered canon. We were writing it. We were talking about how environmental um, injustices are affecting Black people in the Bayview. And what is it like if you have intense heat connecting with you know toxic soil amongst you know black people who are already experiencing you know anthropological crisis you know, which we weren't using anthropological crisis as a term <laughs> at that time um but you know like what does that mean you know what does it mean to be a young person and um you know be successful and have a best friend and then that best friend shoots and kills you because you know, you got one step ahead and it, and then they feel guilty about it, but they can't take back the fact that they, you know, so, and while we're doing all of these different plays and we're working, you know, we've got, we've got Norteños coming, you know, off their corner in the mission into the theater, sitting in the front seat, crying, talking about how they don't want, you know, young people to participate in the game, but the game is the game, you know, like we are using theater and performance as these true conversations with people um, and getting to the root of what it is and really having an impact. And so I was all for that. Um, and again, I was always into writing. And so towards, uh, I think in 2017, still working with Javier, still working at Brava, um, I actually received a $7,000 grant um, to write and produce and direct my own show right and so it ended up being called decrypting the system and it premiered at brava and the other thing too is that we weren't you know when we did our performances we weren't necessarily on the little like kitty stage on the side or in in the lobby we got to perform on the proscenium stage in a 400 seat theater so we you know we also got that experience of true projection right? No microphones catching our voice. We've got to make sure we are heard and make sure that people are understanding our emotions. They're getting our body language. So it's an amazing experience to do that and produce new work and showcase new work in that way for a young person. You know, it was a huge thing. And then also working with You Speaks, you know, I'm performing at Davie Symphony Hall. I'm at the Herbst. I'm at the War Memorial. So it's like, I'm getting all of this wonderful experience um and um and in my last year 2017 2018 I was like I gotta focus because I was supposed to be getting ready to be a lawyer at some point <laughs> um so I was like I gotta focus I gotta get you know um into school and then um when I graduated I actually got into the University of San Francisco for their performing arts and social justice major and still under the the you know still under the impression that I was going to go into law school because I was a part of their four plus three program um and then you know use theater as like a little whatever on the side um but the more work I started doing there and and even just being a part of a program that says it's about social justice made me really start thinking about how I define social justice um, in relation to how the program and how the school was defining social justice and how I define action, um, how I define participation, how I define involvement and what where I think performing arts has a place in that. And, and also, you know, 
as much as I had my contentions or whatever, it was beautiful to be able to learn about just how no revolution and no social change has ever occurred without um, music and performance and poetry. And that, like it just it just hasn't happened. No matter what you look at, that also has been a part of the cultural movement. Um, and so then at some point, you know, law school went further and further away, <laughs> uh, and I focused more on. Um, on writing and performing. And one of the things that I learned at Bravo that, that really was a boon in my career was the, the art of stage management. Um, and so I did a lot of stage management, production management, sound design, looking at the backside of the theater. Um, one, because it paid better. Interesting. Um, it paid better. I could do multiple jobs at once. Whereas, you know, if you're a performer, that's a little harder to do. Um, it was also more frequent because someone might need a stage manager for a day or they might need someone for a full production either way I'm you know able to get paid or sound or things like that um but also because I realized that the the experiences that my friends and um colleagues were having as performers as actors I was like I can't hack it I can't hack going into spaces and having people to tell me their definition of blackness um, and how I should sound or how my body should move or how I should act. And I really am not sure, you know, if I can hack having people who are not of my culture um, or of my skin tone um, tell me that I am not supposed to be doing Shakespeare or that the best place for me to be is as slave number two um, or as maid number one. Right, and I'm seeing all these brilliant performers go out here and get all of. The, I, I just, I, I was like, I can't do it. Yeah, when you're working backstage, no one really cares about whether or not you're nice, <laughs> or how you look, or you know what it is they want to know. Can you press the button? Can you get the job done? And I was like, I prefer to be in that environment, um, because I'm, I, I, I might be too sensitive at the time to actually deal with what it's like to have that constant rejection. You know, well, once you have a skill in backstage production, you're you're not really at risk for that. I didn't have to submit a resume for years because people knew I was good for the work. They knew that I did the work. They saw it done, and that's what it was. But, but my friends who were on, on the stage, you know, they're doing everything to their hair, to their skin, to their whatever, and and the constant rejection. I was like, I'm I'm too weak <laughs> for that, um, especially because it's not the kind of people I want to work with anyway. If I'm going to be rejected, or if I'm going to be course corrected, or if anything's going to go off, I want it to be around the people that I I, I still want to feel like I trust those people, that I know those people, and that I know that they have good intentions for me, um, and. That was not the case either, right? Um, but I saw that space. I saw that safe space, that course correcting space, that open space, that vulnerable space, that fun space, that loving space, that family space in Camposanto Productions. And you could tell on and off the stage just what that atmosphere was able to do for people because the work was always brilliant. The work was always emotionally not just satisfying but like it was emotionally charging you know you're gonna walk away asking yourself for for hours days months you know what about this what about that what does this mean about me who am i and i was like that that's the kind of theater stuff that i want to do um that's the kind of people i want to be around and so while i was in undergrad and definitely in grad school because i went on to get a master's in drama um as of state i really honed in on my relationship with Campo Santo um, and started doing work with their like Clica writers development program. Um, and that's how Dirty White Teslas came to be is, is doing that. And it was also a beautiful thing too, because I was their stage manager and production manager for so long. And I was like, you know, writing is really where I'm at. Um, another major part of me doing a lot of production work was because um I had had a really traumatizing experience with someone um, 
and backstage was also where I could hide because again, no one, no one cared who you were. You weren't really going to show up in anyone's program notes, right? No one was really asking who helped get it done, which is annoying. And I try not to do that, but um, that person that I knew was from a lot of my time as a performer. And I just was like, well, being out here as a performer and moving or whatever got me, got me sexual assault, you know, got, mm. got me a horribly traumatizing experience. And um, it was much easier to be in the background to where, to where uh, I could just be, I could be depressed out loud as a technician because I could wear all black, be ornery, <laughs> get a job done, um, and, and hide in a with, with you know one or two other people and not have to, not have to fear being seen. Um, but when working with Camposanto, I was just like, I'm seen here, you know, I'm seen and I'm safe here, and if I'm going to be seen and I'm going to be safe, then I want to be seen the right way. Um, and that means that I have to be seen as, as as what I am, which is a writer. That even if I'm not performing, I am a writer. That is that is the undeniable gift that God gave me. That is the one thing that I can I can say. Math, no. Drawing, painting, no. My stick figures are slanted and they they don't know what to do with themselves, right? Um I'm I'm not even gonna say that I'm a great cook, you know, culinary arts. It's not that it's going to be inedible. It just might not be the most favorite thing that you want to eat all the time. Okay. But when it comes to, comes to writing and words, that is where I live. Um, and it was a very scary moment because a lot of times when you work with other theater companies or work with other people, if you say, I want to do something other than what you need me for, you get dropped you know, or you get pushed to the side. One, because a lot of those people have already decided who is a writer and who is a what. Um, and two, it's very transactional, right? It's like, I call on you to do this job. If you say you're no longer going to do this job, then I have no reason to call you. And that's not what happened in the least bit. Um, you know, I, I talked to Sean, I talked to Jonas Sato, um and, and Sean San Jose and I was like hey you know I, I love y'all and I really don't want y'all to like think I'm ungrateful for the amount of experience and opportunities I've had but I'm not I'm not supposed to be doing production I, I need I'm supposed to be writing um and they were like well and Joan was like well duh because she's she's been around me since I was 14 at YouSpeak. So she was like, I was wondering where you were going to get that from, you know, where when you were going to pick that back up. And Sean was like, okay, well, let's do it then. Um, and I started bringing in, you know, pieces of writing. And, and that's really how Dirty White Tesla started being developed. Because I would bring in pieces of writing and folks were like, oh, interesting. Like, you know, let's try this or let's try that. Or I see it, I see it. But they wholeheartedly believed in it there was no weird hiccup there was no oh we've got to treat smiley like a something else now because she's not our production manager it was like all right let's find someone who's down to do that work and then we're going to support you in that transition um and that, and that's been how it's rolling and then because of that experience and because of the experience of being able to create in a space that is truly sacred and safe, um, it all led to me applying for my PhD and getting into that program and being able to focus particularly on the sacramentality of performing arts in that way. Um, did I answer the question? I feel like you I did. went off on a whole bunch <laughs> no. of rails. No, I'm so sorry. no, we got the backstory now. We got the backstory. Absolutely. Uh, it's always interesting what motivates people to become who they are. And so all of the experiences you relate to um, make sense uh, in terms of the work you produce and the kind of uh, things that you are a part of. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, before we get into your role uh, with the Baby Opera House, I, I have a, just a quick technical question because I'm fascinated by this. Um, as someone who produced both, you know, behind the scenes, you know, technical, you actually, during the COVID situation, uh, a lot of... Um, producers, performers, technicians had to trans 
translate from the stage to a virtual Zoom type of experience. And so I'm just curious, as uh, someone who's as prolific as you are and as technically sound as you are, what was that like? And uh, what did you learn from going through that that new way of producing art? Um, you know, for me, it was actually a lot of fun, which was horrible for everyone else. It was horrible for everyone else. It was hard. There was a lot of the, you know, performers and theaters that were like, we're just, we're dead in the water until we can be live again. Um, and I was like, well, I don't believe that we have to do that. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think we have to stop creating just because we don't like the format of something. We should just be figuring that out. So I actually dove a lot into, um, virtual production you know what does it mean to what what can zoom do um what is a stream yard and who, what are we doing and what does it mean to go live you know and so we started actually you know within the opera house because we are a venue um for for live events we were like what does that transition look like we don't want to be a part of the group that just kind of falls to the wayside and so after having a few Zoom meetings and having some ideas, you know, the first thing that we did was we recorded people reading chapters of Harry Potter and mm -hmm. released that, you know, so we talked to different, you know, performers or like we had our district 10 supervisor read a chapter um, and everyone kind of read a chapter in your own way of Harry Potter. Um, this was before J.K. Rowling got absolutely ridiculous and we could still like her. Um, and so we were like, okay. That was a thing. We did that. You know, we had like a, a virtual gala, you know, so we were trying to move our way through, you know, figuring out what are the technical elements for this. We had like a uh, an arts class and we figured out how to get the camera angles right so that we could, uh, you know, show the 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 artist, but also show what he's drawing so that other people could participate, too. And then ultimately, I, I was like, okay, so we're we're getting the hang of it. But I'm watching all of these other organizations flounder just like us. We're we're all just trying to figure ourselves out. Um, and I was like, well, what 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 am I good at? I'm good at writing, and I have access to performers. And so I actually um, wrote, directed, and co-edited um, a piece, uh, a show. We had two seasons. It was fun. Um, called the new normal and um it featured a lot of Camposanto artists like sean san jose margo hall made an appearance uh one way possible was in it um juan baruman Brittany white um all of these really beautiful people Britt frazier just you know a lot of the family just in there and it was all around the premise of an arts organization trying to figure out how to survive in the pandemic um and all of the real things that you in, um, engage with which is which includes how do you really have a legitimate zoom meeting you know so many people were trying to figure out how to have a zoom meeting you're on mute you're muted i can't see you so the new normal was very much it was scripted but it was scripted in a way to really kind of look at the different things and the first time around the idea was that this arts organization was trying to figure out how to translate its gala into a virtual um, experience. And it was a mess and it was beautiful um, because I had a lot of fun working with the artists and things like that. And then the second season, you know, there were staff changes and people got new titles and other new people came in and, you know, what is it like as an art org still in the midst of the pandemic, but also talking a lot about the culture of outside, you know, so that was the other major part of doing that work was staying very conscious of what's happening in the community at the, at the time. Right. So, um, you know, we had a piece about George Floyd and just about Black Lives Matter in particular and the amount of police violence that's occurring. We had conversations about, you know, bodily autonomy. We had conversations about um, illness. We had conversations about burnout. Um, and then we also ended up, you know, with a spooky retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's um, 
one of Edgar Allan Poe's pieces, um, the Telltale Heart, uh, as like our kind of closing. So that's kind of where we were living in that in that place of just playing around, you know, and, and also for Camposanto, we were like, we've actually got a lot of we've got a lot of really great documentation, a lot of great recordings of past performances. And one of the things that people always asked about is, you know, we don't necessarily remount shows. And so we were able to go back and say, hey, if you missed this performance or if you really liked it and you want to see it again, here's a series of showings. And this is also a way for you to donate to artists to the artists that were involved um, to help them keep going because their main source of income, their jobs are gone. Um, and, you know, learning a lot of Zoom skills so then I could contract out as a Zoom technician, which is still holding me down to this day as something that's a it's a good contingency plan. Um, but I, I really went for embracing it rather than shying away from it um, and just it was a great opportunity to get a taste of what doing like TV or film is like, you know, how do you translate these things for a camera? What are, what are the pros and cons of using a zoom camera versus if you add in another camera? Um, what does editing look like on the backside? All of those good things, all of that fun stuff. So that's kind of where myself or Camposanto and where the opera house really kind of pivoted into that lane um and it was great because we learned so much about the world but also we were able to stay relevant and stay visible to our community um and and that was a major boon as well yeah it's just it's interesting i talk to artists and, and producers all the time and that was such an interesting period of time for artists and uh, artistic organizations to, to to adapt like you said and um you know it's it, it it changed the art a little bit and people still got to experience it, especially during the time when it was desperately needed because uh, people were, were going crazy. Um, let me now shift to your role uh, with the Baby Opera House. So tell me about your role as program director and tell me about Baby Opera House. Um, yeah, so the Baby Opera House, um, also known as the Ruth Williams Opera House. It's also been the Ruth Williams Memorial Theater. It's also been the South San Francisco Opera House. Um, it is uh, a cultural hub and institution um, for the Black community, but for the San Francisco community as well, located in Bayview Hunters Point. Um, and so, hi, hi, Ulysses. <laughs> um, and so, it's been sitting here at um, right here on Third Street since 1888. It was initially wow. built by the Masons. Um, to be a meeting uh, space and also party central. Um, so they would have folks come in and do opera, classical music. And that's really what the space is built for. So if you come in here, the acoustics are amazing. Um, if you are playing a classical instrument or if you are singing, it's not really great if you're trying to tell somebody a secret because um, it'll bounce all over the walls. <laughs> but um, so it was that for quite some time. And then it was kind of like a, a cultural center um, but in the 1950s and 60s, when people started working with, um, you know, this idea of redevelopment, you know, the city was ready to tear the opera house down um, and build some houses or something. And Ruth Williams, um, who was a Bayview resident, she was an educator, she was also an artist, um, a singer, a writer, um, director of theater, um, worked with um with another beautiful set of of black women you know the big five um but really ferociously worked to keep the opera house open alive and open um and she was successful and from there she really took over programming the opera house so the again there was food programs and um sleepovers and performances and talent shows and um i myself when i was younger got to participate in black history month productions and black honor roll parades and there were couple weather classes i mean she really you know helped develop the organization um and, and tons of theater 
um, and poetry, but just really developed the organization as a cultural stronghold um, for the Black folks of Bayview, but for everyone to have this recognizable space in the city. Um, and in 1995, I want to say, um, after her passing, the main space, which is the kind of auditorium space, because what we have is we have kind of like a main auditorium space that has a proscenium stage and then we also have an outdoor amphitheater but the main space was um named the ruth williams memorial theater um in honor of the work she did to make sure that the building could still stand um and be a be a safe space for black bodies for black people um and from that, her family and other really amazing community organizers have worked within this organization to keep that legacy alive, to maintain um, a community rapport in which we not only hold town halls, um, but we also will hold, um, you know, Zacco Dance Theater doing aerial um, performance. You know, so we, we run the gamut. Um, to be not only a space where folks are exposed to different art forms, um, but that we preserve the culture of the Bayview community as well um, and educate people about the importance, honestly, of, of what it's like to have a space like this available to us, but also the importance of art um, and the way that art can and does and will save lives. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the Opera House um, in a nutshell. <laughs> um, one of the things I like asking folks, particularly uh, artists from either San Francisco or Oakland or around the Bay Area, is that, you know, there's a distinct, I think, advantage to being here in the Bay Area, which is kind of a cultural epicenter. Um, tell me about uh, your experiences and your view of the Bay Area. Uh, as a cultural epicenter, and what are some of the advantages that uh, you may see here in the Bay Area that uh, is unique to to San Francisco Bay Area? Yeah, you know, um, I think one of the best things about being the program director for the Opera House is that I can connect a bunch of dots. Um, and so as a working artist, as an artist who has a bunch of artist friends, who also have artist friends, um, I'm always finding out new artists and all of the artists in the Bay Area are stretching themselves into new definitions of their genre, right? Or just deciding that that they don't care about the box and the label. They're making whatever, you know, it's all multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, uh, multimedia, cross-media, you know, everyone's just creating. Um, and where they're isn't space people are creating space and a lot of people will talk about the fact that like the arts um and culture of san francisco are dead and i always find that funny i was like because they're dead in terms of what status quo would mm -hmm. want to consider to be art and culture but let me tell you the stuff that people are doing out here is amazing you know, like, and I think, you know, that's one of the the things about the Bay Area is that there's just not enough information going out about just how often and constant people are doing brilliant and amazing work. Um, and, but it's always exciting. You know, there's all, there's, there's never a lack of anything to do. You know, it doesn't matter whatever weekend you choose, even some weekdays, there is something for you to do in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, a part of a part of being program director is making sure that what that one of those things you choose to do is is hopefully going to be at the opera house, you know, so staying in community with people and staying in conversation with people. What do you want to see? What do you who who's out there doing interesting stuff to you now? everything um that the mainstream world uh might participate or enjoy it's probably not gonna come through these doors <laughs> um but 
um, we are open. You know, like, I mean, just, just this past Saturday, we had an entire evening dedicated to um, turf dance battles and street dance battles. Uh, people were using props. They were co-ed battles. There was food trucks. It was all the stuff, you know, and, you know, then we turn around and we have, you know, a kid's cinema club or then we turn around and we have, you know, what's going to be coming up in November, which is the Bayview Urban Arts Festival, along with the Pop-Up Resource Village, which is all about getting people registered to vote so that they can participate in the vote to eradicate um the 13th Amendment, or the part of the 13th Amendment, which allows for the enslavement of incarcerated people, right? And so, you know, we get to be a place where we kind of bring it in um, and and help navigate it and then get it out back to the world, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Bay Area is just teeming. Visual artists, oh my gosh, there's so many. Um of all ages, our young people are phenomenal. I mean, the stuff that they're able to do and the way that they're able to think, but also the way that they're thinking about themselves as an artist is amazing because they are exemplary in the fact that they know that their art is labor and that that labor deserves pay. Um, and they also don't necessarily believe in the idea of paying dues, right? Um, which at first is kind of like, what you mean? I had to, you know, fold chairs and clean tables and stuff before somebody. But there's also a level of, of starting to question that culture. You know, there there's a level of paying dues in which in which actually you're not paying dues, but you're learning the culture and you're learning the ways and you're learning to respect the space you're in. It's not necessarily paying dues, but it's it's um, defining your investment in what's happening. Then there's the other stuff that's paying dues and you're like, no, that's just hazing. You know, that's just, that's, some of that's just being mean. Some of that's just being, it doesn't do anything for the person's character. It doesn't do anything for their professionalism or, or for their craft. It's just a separator, right? And they're like, we don't have time for that. I'm like, you know, actually, that's a, that's not a bad idea to let the negative things go and really focus on the culture and really focus on the positive. Um, but also just watching them be like, I deserve money. And I'm like, you know what? You do. Why was I ever in my mind thinking that it was okay for me to not receive um, money for labor? And why was that um, an accepted teaching? Right. And so being a part of those conversations about, like, hey, you know, we've always said not enough money has been going to the arts, but not enough money is going to the arts because we need to pay these artists who are refusing to to do art without being properly paid as they should right um and so now jumping into those conversations how do we get finances to actually pump into the arts the way that they're supposed to finally so that we can stop pretending like being an artist is not a career path people are still very convinced that um being an artist is a hobby. Um, that being an artist is a hobby and um, something you do on the side, but it's not a real job. It's not a, a real career. Um, and that's a lie. Uh, just point blank. That's a lie. Um aside from all of the transferable skills that being an artist and being around performing artists and visual artists can give you, like, I do work every day. That is my job as an artist. Um, and so funding then should be reflective of that. Um, the amount of money that people put in their budget for performers should be reflective of the fact that I'm a person that's working. And when I ask to be honored in that way, um, I shouldn't get pushback. 
really um and told that i'm not really for the community or something just because i want to be able to pay my light bill the same way that you are paying your light bill you know um so yeah so that's the that's the kind of kind of work we're in and the kind of work that i get to do as a program director is one be a part of that and as an arts administrator be a part of the larger conversations that artists don't get to be a part of with the city funders and the and the dignitaries and the supervisors and stuff and be an advocate then for artists to get what they um deserve really yeah well ashley i want to uh thank you so much let me give the particulars now for uh your upcoming play uh, the title is Dirty White Teslas Make Me Sad by our guest, Ashley Smiley, directed by Raul Myrick Hodges. It debuts on February 28th, 2024, runs through March 17th, 2024 at the Magic Theater in San Francisco. Best of luck with your new production. Thank you. Um, keep out there in the arts world. And as I said in the opening, you are one of the most important voices in the Bay Area community for the arts. It comes through. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on on your birthday again. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. And if people want more information about you, uh, your new play, Baby Opera House, where can they go? Um, you know, right now, Instagram is where it's at. It will lead you to all the right places. Um, so for Baby Opera House, if you do, you know, at symbol, B is in boy, B is in Victor, Opera House, all one word. Um, that's where you'll find us. And that's where we post a lot of our stuff. And for me, um, if you want to follow Smiley from the SCO, so that's S-M-I-L-E-Y-F-R-O-M-T-H-E-S-C-O, <laughs> um, then that's where you can find me. That's where you can connect. And that's where you can learn a lot about um, not only February, but we're going to be having an excerpt and a little, you know, deep dive into the world of 30 by Tesla's make me sad as a part of the third new roots festival with SF Batco in November at Brava. So it'll be great to kind of return to my old stomping grounds um, and talk about this show, but we'll be there. Um, and that's where you can find out more about that as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Ashley, congratulations again on all your endeavors. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the Edric show today. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful rest of your day. You're very welcome. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. As promised, this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Ring that notification bell. You will get notified each and every week when I post content. I want to thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you on the next episode.